I am uh, I'm Toby Dodge. I have the glorious title of Interim Director of the Middle East Centre, and this is the, uh, the first lecture I'm chairing in my new role, so it's, it's an unalloyed pleasure to welcome Paul. Uh, for two reasons, I've, uh, as he's forced me to confess, I've read sections of this book, and I think um, uh, the, the Libya and the Iraq chapters especially, and I think it's, it's, it's a very positive hybrid because a lot of journalist books, and will go unmentioned here, have a string of really entertaining anecdotes and little analysis, and this certainly has some, some powerful insights into the ordinary people of the Middle East, but it has a very rich and for an academic especially important footnoted um, analysis as well. So I think it's really worth um, reading and it'll be, bought, it'll be on sale outside. But I think it's no surprise because Paul is probably one of the most, certainly one of the most senior British journalists to work on the Middle East, has been, as he was proving in discussions before, has been nearly ed everywhere as, a bureau in the Middle East, as the bureau, uh, Middle East Bureau Chief 2010-2013, has worked in Baghdad, and has served in um, all three countries that make up the axis of evil, Iran, um, Iraq, and North Korea. So he really knows what he's talking about. Um, he'll speak for about 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. If he speaks for 50 minutes, I'll start to get grumpy. Um, and then we'll take free-ranging but polite and short questions from the floor. Uh, and we'll, we'll, uh, summon, we'll, we'll end up after about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, depending on... Um, how interested and interesting you are. So without further ado, Paul. Okay. I'll move over there. Right. I was just saying to Toby, I, I used to be the chairman of the Foreign Press Association uh, based in Jerusalem. And we had a session like this, and we had an Israeli politician come up, and she was fascinating. We were tweeting all the way through. My God, she's saying this. My God, she's saying that. And at the end, she said, that's all off the record, OK? <laughs> Um, this is not off the record, because uh, off the record is pretty useless, uh, because people don't say what they mean. So I'll say what I mean. Um, look, thank you. It's really nice to be here, and it's really nice to have so many people here to listen to me. Um, I am a journalist, as Toby pointed out. I'm not an academic, and I may not even be as knowledgeable about the detail of the Middle East as some of you probably are. But I have been around quite a lot. Um, the journey that led me to this place up here uh, began just over 10 years ago. On a quiet street in central Baghdad, there were two things unusual about it. It was deserted, and there was a large American tank uh, parked by the side of the road with its barrel pointing straight at me. Uh, all I had was a dirty white tablecloth I had snatched from the Palestine Hotel. I think, in truth, I may have overdone it on the waving as I went towards the tank, but it was one of those moments that drive journalists. This was history, and I was there. The soon-to-be-famous statue of Saddam Hussein, which I had seen being built the year before, it was not famous until it came down, um, was about to be dragged from its pedestal by young American men. In the following years, I would be lucky enough to witness other key events in the Middle East. The fall of Mubarak in Tahrir Square. I met Colonel Gaddafi when he was alive, and I met him again when he was very dead. Um, and I got a rather limp handshake from the man who would replace him as the world's most famous dictator, Bashar al-Assad, who does really feel like an eye doctor when you meet him. Uh, and it's quite surprising uh, how he's changed. Or maybe he hasn't changed. Uh, more importantly, I've had the opportunity to talk to ordinary people in the Middle East about their hopes and their aspirations and their disappointments about many of the events that have flowed from the Big Bang of revolution. But back on that April morning in 2003, all that was still ahead of me. As I walked up to the tank, a young Marine asked me, how are you doing? I said, fine. And that was it. I had been liberated. The American occupation of Iraq had begun. The first of the Middle East's great dictators had been toppled. Saddam Hussein was a center of gravity in the Middle East. When he went, it changed the course of everything else. So, just under eight years later, I was back in another Arab capital, getting to know another American import during the toppling of another dictator. I have simply never understood why tear gas canisters have their country of origin proudly emblazoned upon them. It's like saying this vomit-inducing moment was brought to you by Uncle Sam. Now you have a nice day. On the 28th of January 2011, which was Egypt's day of rage, America's then chief diplomat, Hillary Clinton, was saying, 
We are deeply concerned about the use of violence by Egyptian police and security forces against protesters. These solemn words were being spoken as I joined others, spluttering in the back streets of Cairo from American-made tear gas paid for by American military aid, which was playing a big role in that violence by Egyptian police and security forces against protesters. When you live in the Middle East, it is not hard to understand why people there often find the things America does at odds with the things America says. And in the timeless city of Cairo, in particular, the United States just can't seem to get its message right. It was there that a US president sent his Secretary of State to apologize to the Arab world for the actions of every administration since the Second World War. Then the current American president, Barack Obama, came personally to issue another apology, and this time for the administration that delivered the last one. It is not too hard to imagine that the next American president might also one day end up saying to their staff, can you find me a venue in Cairo? Because I want to explain that this time it really, really is going to be different. The Obama administration has not had a good post-Arab spring, in my view. It's been so bad that a US commentator recently concluded that Obama's Middle East policy has been like watching a blind squirrel searching for a nut. I would challenge anyone today to tell us what our Mideast strategy is, chipped in former top US military commander in the Middle East, General James Mattis. January 2011 in Cairo was a moment when America's old and decrepit foreign policy in the Middle East finally found itself caught in the headlights just before the juggernaut driven by a generation of young Arab youths turned it into roadkill. The US has not yet found a new one. Barbara Bodine, the former US ambassador to Yemen, told me, I really don't know anybody who liked dealing with dictators, but there is a perverse simplicity to it. The world after the Arab Spring is now much more complex. So what does it look like, almost three years after the first protests erupted? What's clear is that those revolutions were only the start of the journey. They were not a destination. They were a process, not a result in themselves. And those of us who are old enough to remember what happened in Europe after the fall of the Soviet Union shouldn't be surprised about the gloom and doom that comes after revolution. It is very difficult. What we do know is that the region is leaving behind the old socialist ideologies of Ba'athism and Pan-Arabism and those carried by the founders of Zionism. The Arab Spring has breathed new life into the schism within Islam itself. Sunni and Shia Muslims are facing off against each other in some of the region's most volatile areas. But even the Sunni powers are divided, with the revolts reigniting old rivalries between the competing ideologies of the Muslim Brotherhood and the kingdoms in the Gulf. Even in Israel, there is a growing religious divide. Their society is split along ultra-Orthodox, religious Zionist and secular lines. Across the Arab world, Christians and other minorities wonder if they still have a safe place in the new societies being formed. Religion, not nationalism or Arabism, is now the dominant force. The board on which all these new power games are being played stretches across the Middle East. The rules largely come from scripture and every player interprets them according to their faith. America not only does not understand the rules of the game, it can't work out what winning might look like. So it's been roaming around the table looking at everybody else's hand, offering advice on which card to play, and nobody is listening because they're acting like they don't have a stake in the game. Now you may ask, well, I'm only talking about America, what about Europe? The truth is the European Union makes America look very decisive. And the fact is, in the Middle East, since the Suez fiasco, America has been the only big player in town. So I am going to focus a lot of my thoughts on America and its role in the region. After lots of criticism and years of academics reading the tea leaves looking for an Obama doctrine, the President himself finally appeared ready last month to announce a new one for the Middle East at the United Nations General Assembly. And it was, ta-da, pretty much the same one as the first one, outlined by President Eisenhower. Is that? <laughs> You're throwing things at me, just wait till the end, please. Uh, outlined by President Eisenhower nearly 60 years ago. Oil and Israel are among the core interests, with the menace of Soviet communism replaced with that of Islamic extremism. What was not in the core interests set out by President Obama, the man who offered the people of the Arab world a new beginning from his pulpit in Cairo, were human rights and democracy. 
Now that came as a bit of a shock to some people in the Arab world who'd spilt their blood in revolutions to overthrow their dictators. And I think it's important to say that these are Muslims who have fought harder and suffered more for democracy and human rights than most Westerners alive today. They have been desperate to reclaim their identities from Al-Qaeda and Hollywood central casting. And suddenly, all this was relegated by President Obama into the nice-to-have column, along with open markets. Excuse me a second. Obama told his fellow leaders, and I quote, in the near term, America's diplomatic efforts will focus on two particular issues, Iran's pursuit of nuclear weapons and the Arab-Israeli conflict, because, he said, resolving them can help serve as a foundation for a broader peace. In my view, at the moment, in the aftermath of the Arab Spring revolts, these are the wrong two issues to focus on. The Iranian nuclear program may be something that decides war and peace in the region, but the Arab-Israeli conflict will not. It is in fact increasingly not an Arab-Israeli conflict, it's a Palestinian-Israeli conflict, because the Arab world has too much else to worry about. I'll talk about these two issues later, but first let me say what I think should have been in the top tier. Three issues should dominate America's diplomatic efforts in the Middle East, in my view. Along with Iran should be Egypt and Syria. These last two will, in the short term, have a profound impact on the region, more so for the moment than the Palestinian issue. Both of these have at their root the role and reach of religion in societies, and both of these, if handled badly or barely handled at all, offer the prospect of a much more troublesome future for America's most important ally in the region, Israel. Let me start with Egypt. The worrying thing about what has happened there is that while some people might have been upset by Obama relegating democracy to a place outside his core interests, others simply now couldn't care less. And many of these people were standing with me in Tahrir Square celebrating the fall of Mubarak. They had marched through the streets of Cairo to demand democracy in 2011 and then marched again in June 2013 effectively to get rid of it. It was the uncontrollable rage of a generation over the prospect of a wasted life that devoured Middle East dictators in the first weeks and months of the Arab Spring. These were young people ashamed of their past and desperate for a future. They wanted bread, dignity and social justice. Unlike earlier revolutionary movements in the world's history, social media, about which I'm sure most of you know quite a lot about, and I'll divert slightly from here. When I was in Libya there was a I met a couple of guys who were from Manchester, they were British Libyans, and they wouldn't tell me their names because they thought MI6 might track them down. Um, but they came to me and they said, do you have a satellite phone? And I said, yeah. And they said, can we use it? And I said, mm, what do you want it for? Thinking they were going to ring their mum and dad, you know, because they were away from home fighting in a war. And they said, can you get on the internet? And I said, yeah. And they said, can we check our Facebook page? <laughs> And I said, yeah, and they said, and we need to check our exam results, because if we fail, we'll have to go back, but if we passed, we can carry on fighting. Um, and they passed, so they carried on fighting. I don't know what happened to them, but they were nice lads, and if MI6 is listening, please don't arrest them. Um, anyway, where was I? Uh, so, uh, the revolutions in the Middle East, because of social media, were leaderless. The usual government tricks didn't work. There was no one to buy off, lock up, or scare away. That was a great strength of the Arab Spring when it began, but for the secular middle classes it also proved to be its greatest weakness. They had formed the vanguard of the uprising, but then when the dictators fell they had no one to represent them. As events wore on, young Democrats were sometimes campaigning to stop free and fair elections from quickly taking place because they knew they simply weren't ready to compete. Revolution, once its makers pluck up the courage, is the easy part. It's what follows that is so hard. Every nation that has rose up has found that. There is a real now what moment that hits people once a dictator has gone. Suddenly right and wrong are less obvious. Overnight, people who weren't allowed to decide anything their whole lives are now having to decide everything. It is not a learning curve. It really is a sheer cliff. So the spoils went to the groups who were the most organised. In Tunisia and then Egypt, this meant that the first waves of democracy produced a surge in influence for the Islamists, not for the secular revolutionaries. And the Islamist governments were simply rubbish. They failed to deliver on anything, not bread, not dignity or social justice. 
The economies in all of the Arab Spring countries remain in a mess. Economists from HSBC concluded last week that the revolts in the region will have cost $800 billion in lost revenue by the end of next year. In particular, the Muslim Brotherhood's foray into governance in Egypt was a complete disaster. After years of suffering at the hands of the regime, it at first attracted a huge sympathy vote, even from those people who were not naturally inclined to support it. That, though, was soon squandered, partly because the task was almost impossible, partly because they proved to be utterly incompetent and prone to authoritarianism themselves, and partly because they were undermined from day one by the bureaucracy and the security services of the old regime, which were largely left intact when the old guy got booted out. The Islamists across the region ignored the fact that these uprisings were not Islamic revolutions. The call did not come from the mosque. Even in places where political choices might be tied to individual faiths, being pious was never going to be enough. Voters wanted answers to problems like unemployment, an inadequate education system and poor health care. The young revolutionaries did not fight to overthrow dictators just to have their freedoms curbed by religious edicts. Until the revolution of 2011, the Muslim Brotherhood had survived for over 80 years by working within the boundaries set by the system. It had emerged intact after the revolt, but its years of flexibility had also given it a reputation for slipperiness. Its actions in power, meanwhile, were driven by the not entirely unjustified and by now institutionalised paranoia that everyone is out to get them. And the events of July have shown that they're probably right. The big problem is, though, the Brotherhood simply doesn't trust the people of Egypt. This suspicion began in 1954 when General Nasser crushed the organisation and the broad mass of Egyptian people stood by and watched. And now it's been reinforced by the actions of the man who seems to think he is the new Nasser, General Abdel al-Sisi, who is presently in charge of Egypt. Hundreds, the Brotherhood says thousands, of its supporters have been killed by security services since the coup in July. Meanwhile, many more have been injured and pretty much the entire leadership has been banged up in jail. Now, history shows that when you cut the head off the Brotherhood, its more militant supporters take control of events and Egypt gets bloody. The army knows this full well and it's hard not to conclude that perhaps there are elements of the deep state in Egypt which is looking for excuses so they can wipe out the Brotherhood. But they will fail. The Brotherhood proved in the last couple of years that when it's forced out into the open and held accountable in the public arena, it's a bit clueless. Where it thrives is in the shadows, which is where the attempt to ban it will put it. That's not good for Egypt. The Brotherhood may be down, but the Brotherhood is not out. It is still the most important non-state actor in the region. The popular coup in 2013 may now set up a new generational struggle between it and the Egyptian army. But perhaps more importantly, the message to many Islamists around the region that's been taken from the coup is that even if they play the democratic game and get organised and get elected, they will still be denied the right to govern. The coup in Egypt has strengthened the arguments of extremist groups like Al-Qaeda and yes, it was a coup. That is a four-letter word that even the Obama administration's foulest mouths can't bring themselves to utter, but they really should because it's causing more and more confusion about American foreign policy in Egypt and the wider region. Overall, there is no way to see what happened in Egypt this summer as anything but a huge blow to the hopes for democracy in the region. Egypt has failed its first democratic test. President Morsi's leadership was useless, divisive and hugely unpopular, but he was fairly elected. And I stood outside the polling stations and watched people do it. And they genuinely were excited, no matter where they came from, no matter who they voted for, they were genuinely excited about the chance to vote for people and have ballot boxes that arrived empty, which was a bit of a change for them. And a way should have been found to vote him out. It was the people who demanded his removal, but by approving the shortcut of a military intervention, they have damaged Egypt in the long run. Many Egyptians think toppling Morsi and having new elections gives them a clean slate. In fact, it has permanently stained their democratic enterprise. The people may have now taken on and won battles against both the army and the brotherhood, but they've also set a dangerous precedent. And they did it without creating a viable political alternative. In fact, the only thing Egyptians have all been able to agree on since the uprising in 2011 is that they can't trust anybody else with their revolution. And that's not surprising because a life lived under dictatorship justifies suspicions. 
But the borderline lunacy of some of the conspiracy the theories that people have been putting their time and energy into has left very little for building political institutions. And that has given strongman rule, which most of us thought had been consigned to the dustbin, another lease of life in the shape of General Sisi. Along with that has come arbitrary arrest, a clamping down on press freedom, and a new swagger from the venal and brutish police force. The ripples from Egypt are already being felt elsewhere. The Tunisian Islamist group Anada has agreed on new elections. The Brotherhood in Libya, which did badly in the first polls, but was trying to raise its profile in the aftermath, is now trying to keep its head down. But perhaps the place where the fall of the Brotherhood was most keenly felt was in the Gulf. Most of the kingdoms there, and particularly Saudi Arabia, were cock-a-hoop when Morsi failed because the Brotherhood is competing with them for the loyalty and influence among the Sunni faithful. This relationship was put to me most succinctly by a senior defence official in Israel who said, and I quote, the Saudis hate their guts. Which is one of only two things Israel and the Saudis can agree on. The other being that America should drop, to stop messing around and drop some nice big bombs on Iran and sort this nuclear program out once and for all. Or, as King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia used to say to the Bush administration, cut off the head of the snake. The only thing the Saudis and the Israelis collectively hate more than the Muslim Brotherhood is the Iranian leadership. Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, is not a happy man these days. That's because, as one of his aides pointed out to me over lunch, 2012 was a great year, from Netanyahu's point of view, to have attacked Iran. The region was in flux, the Arab public were contemptuous of Iran, which had tried to kind of rally around and climb on their revolutionary bandwagon with all the hypocrisy it could muster. And then there was the Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who was a godsend if you were trying to make the case that the Iranians were messianic loonies bent on Israel's annihilation. Ahmadinejad sank so low that he was at one stage even being ridiculed by Al-Qaeda for spreading ridiculous conspiracy theories. And when Al-Qaeda say you're stupid and mad, you really kind of have a problem. <laughs> then suddenly, this autumn, along comes a new president, Hussein Rouhani, to New York armed with a wide smile and a Twitter account and turns decades of carefully crafted Israeli policy on its head. The Saudis were not best pleased either, so much so that they went home from the UNA, UNGA in a huff, refusing to deliver their speech. They are now moaning in private, Netanyahu is not, he's making a lot of noise. It's important to remember that as far back as 1992, when Netanyahu was just a parliamentarian, he was warning that Iran was three to five years away from making a bomb, and that the threat must be uprooted by an international front headed by the US. Now, even if he's actually right, nobody wants to listen to him, because he sounds like a man who's been crying wolf. His problems are made worse by the fact that he's done very little to make any other friends outside the White House and the Congress. And at one stage, he thought he could even get by without the White House. In May 2011, Netanyahu was so confident that he had the measure of Obama that he felt able to publicly rebuke the president in his own front room. It was a measure of how much they truly disliked each other that he and Netanyahu tried so hard to pretend they were the best of friends when Obama visited Israel this year. Or rather, Obama and Bibi were best friends. The US president went through press conferences throwing out Netanyahu's nickname so many times that the bonhomie looked thoroughly forced. The interaction between the two men was, said an Israeli commentator, cringeworthy. The truth is they don't like each other, and added to that, much of Europe's leadership doesn't personally like Netanyahu either. While they support Israel and they support its security, they aren't falling over themselves to listen to Netanyahu over Iran because in the past on things like the conflict with the Palestinians, he simply hasn't been ready to listen to them. Netanyahu's obsession with the nuclear issue and European fears that he might go it alone and bomb Iran were used by the Obama administration in the first term to push the EU towards tougher and tougher sanctions. In fact, the Israeli Prime Minister still does not want to go alone because Israel can't finish the job by itself. The best it could do, a senior member of the Israeli government told me, was delay it by five years by destroying what he called pinch points in the nuclear program. Not being able to finish the job is why they have wanted the Americans on board, because only the US has bombs big enough to destroy heavily fortified nuclear sites. The Americans won't do it until they've exhausted all other options, and they won't give Israel the bombs to do it themselves in the meantime. Netanyahu has also failed to convince his military leadership 
All the senior Israelis in both the military and intelligence services that I have spoken to over the last few years believe that sanctions and the regular mysterious deaths of Iranian nuclear scientists are more effective than Israel going on a bombing run. But if push comes to shove, the Israeli people will support going it alone. Having its own nuclear weapons capacity is Israel's trump card in the region, and it's not about to see it matched. But to be fair to Netanyahu, he is not playing politics on the issue of Iran. He really believes what he says, and he thinks the rest of the world is being suckered. He sees his place in history to defend Israel and the Jewish people from Iran, a diplomat who's dealt with him told me. The Palestinian issue is an issue he has to deal with because the Americans and the Europeans are on his back about it. But he doesn't have any sense of historical destiny for himself as a man who made peace with the Palestinians. So why not? Why doesn't Netanyahu want to win a Nobel Peace Prize? Everybody else does. And why doesn't he want to go down in history as one of the great diplomats of our time, ending the great struggle of our age? The people I meet outside the region, and particularly in America, where I now live, seem to believe that both sides are desperate for a breakthrough. If only a way could be found to resolve it. Secretary of State John Kerry tried to chivy along the two sides by warning earlier this year, the window for the two-state solution is shutting. I think we have some period of time, a year and a half or two years, or it's over. Now that's what you say to create a sense of urgency when all sides want to deal. The problem is they don't. The time lag between what the outside world thinks Israel thinks of the peace process and what it really thinks of the peace process is quite stark, and it's only by living there that you can really understand it. The Western world has tended to understand modern Israel, has tended not to understand modern Israel, because it has looked at it through the prism of the conflict with the Palestinians. The Israelis do not see their society in that way anymore. The last election was fought on issues about Israel's relationship with itself, not with the Palestinians. Like the rest of the Middle East, God and the role of religion in society and politics is at the heart of the debate in Israel too. Israel is becoming more religious and more nationalist, and those two things put it at risk of becoming less democratic. When it comes to the issue the outside world cares about, the peace process, Israel has swung sharply to the right, and it is not going to swing back again. The outspring, regardless of Obama's encouraging words, has only made Israel's sense of insecurity worse. For the, for the last 40 years, their two quietest borders were with their biggest two neighbours, Egypt and Syria. Dictators ran these places, and the Israeli military had reached an accommodation with them both. Now, across the northern border, there is a civil war in Syria with a growing jihadi presence. To the south, in the long-neglected Sinai region, Egypt's army is struggling to deal with a hotbed of Islamic militancy. For the first time, it is not from militant resistance groups fighting against an Israeli occupation, but from jihadis fighting about religion. The battle over land is being replaced by a battle over God. That is a fundamental change for Israel. A senior Israeli military strategist told me, we know we are the next target for the jihadists in Syria. First they want to take care of Assad, and then they want to use this huge place against us. Not having had much luck with the Arab states that do exist around it, Israel has not been in much of a hurry to help create another one. The younger generation, who one might expect to be pushing their elders to kind of do a deal, were the ones traumatized in their childhood by the violence of the Second Intifada. Having Yala Pid's more centrist party in the new Israeli government is not going to lead to a breakthrough in the peace process because alongside it is the pro-settler Jewish Home Party, which doesn't believe in a Palestinian state at all. What they want to do is formally annex a huge chunk of the West Bank and kill off the two-state solution. Under the so-called Oslo II peace accord, signed between Israel and the Palestinians, the West Bank is divided into three areas, A, B, and C. You probably all know this, but for those who don't. The Palestinians have almost total control over area A, which includes their main urban centers, partial control over area B. But the remaining 62% of their land, known as area C, Israel retains near-exclusive control, including over law enforcement, planning, and construction. This is the area where the most rapid expansion of Jewish settlements has taken place. The Israeli government dismisses the settler numbers by saying they occupy only a tiny proportion of the land. And this is true. But to protect them and the roads they drive on, Israel insists on controlling a much larger area. The United Nations states that 
Most of Area C has been allocated for the benefit of Israeli settlements, which receive preferential treatment at the expense of the Palestinian communities. Palestinian movement is controlled and restricted by a complex system of physical and administrative means. And Area C is what the Israeli right wants to grab. The reason why many ordinary Israelis do not care much about the peace process with the Palestinians on the West Bank is they do not have as much to fear from those Palestinians anymore. They have the American-funded Iron Dome anti-missile system to defend them in the skies, and on the ground they've built a physical barrier to keep the Palestinians away. The Israeli government thinks it has a, has a situation in the West Bank under control. It knows that is not true in Gaza. It was not an irony. It was an irony not lost on the region that during the first term of the Obama administration, the Israelis, even if by remote control, indulged in more successful negotiations with the bad Islamists running Gaza than they did with the good, moderate Palestinians running the West Bank. The PLO has given up their guns, recognized the state of Israel, swapped their fatigues for suits, and ended up shuffled into irrelevance. Hamas in Gaza has done none of the above. It regularly fires rockets into Israel. It allowed violent, hardline Salafist groups to operate on its turf, though it used an equal level of violence to uh, control them. And Hamas were a greater threat to Israel, and thus could not be ignored. But the coup in Egypt this year has dramatically weakened Hamas too. It took a gamble after the Arab Spring by jumping ship from the Shia-dominated axis of resistance, which included Hezbollah, Syria and Iran, to what it thought was the safety of the Sunni fold. It hoped to replace its funding from Qatar and its political support from Egypt. And for a while, while the Brotherhood was running Egypt, that worked quite well. But the new regime in Cairo has tightened its side of the blockade around the Strip. Hundreds of smuggling tunnels into Egypt have been closed down. The Gazan economy is in serious trouble and people, by and large, can't get out. Hamas is now physically and politically isolated from much of the region. Collectively, the Palestinians have very few options and very few ways to improve their lot. Their negotiation position is very, very weak. But if the Palestinians are feeling lonely, so too are the Israelis. I know the American people support us, but I'm not sure about the White House. In Europe, I know the leaders support us. I'm not sure about the people. That's how a minister in the present Israeli cabinet explained his take on things to me during Obama's first term. That's not as true of the leaders of Europe anymore. The growing shift in tone in Europe was illustrated by the support its nations gave last year to the upgrade of the Palestinian status to that of non-member observer state, like the Vatican. The shift was not something that the Israeli leadership had been blind to. It just didn't care very much. Israeli officials told me privately that those around Benjamin Netanyahu recognized this change, but it was impossible to persuade him that it really mattered. He'd put all his eggs in the American basket because he believed he could contrive the support of the American people, even if it meant going over the head of the American president. A European diplomat who considers himself a friend of Israel told me privately that he feared Israel was increasingly losing the sympathy of the outside world. Public opinion, he said, is less tolerant of the status quo and increasingly see this as David and Goliath, where Israel is no longer David. It is still not clear that the Israeli political leadership has grasped that idea yet. Having got his fingers badly burned on the Israeli-Palestinian issue in his first term, President Obama will not be willing to put his credibility on the line again, unless John Kerry tells him there's something serious to work with. He won't go out on a limb unless the Israeli and Palestinian leaders are sitting there already. It's hard not to be cynical about the peace process, and it's always easier to say it's going nowhere because generally it doesn't. So let me put my neck out. In my considered opinion, the present series of negotiations are eventually going nowhere. The struggle between Israelis and Palestinians defined much of the old Middle East. It will not define the new one. So what will? I think it's hard to understate how much of a problem the mess in Syria promises to be for the entire region. Nothing expressed a profound shock caused by the collapse of the old order in the Middle East more clearly than the confused and dithering reaction of the outside world to the war in Syria. It simply did not know what to do. How am I doing for time? Another five, ten minutes. I've got five, ten minutes worth. The turn of President Obama's UN speech last month kind of said, look at the state of this place, as if the US had just popped out to buy some milk and returned to find that everything in the Middle East had been left in a mess. 
which is kind of what it did do in 2012 because the Obama administration was so busy getting itself re-elected, it completely dropped the ball on Syria. Everybody missed the train on this crisis. A diplomat in Damascus told me a few months ago, the UN didn't show up, the Europeans and the Americans didn't show up, they left it in the hands of the Arab League, then the Arab League started messing it up from day one. They are the ones who radicalized it, he said. In the absence of an alternative plan from the Western powers, the Gulf states did what they always do when confronted with a complex political dilemma. They opened their wallets and threw money at it. The Gulf kingdoms had been petrified by the pace of change in Tunisia and Egypt, and they feared that the wave of revolts was unstoppable. Libya reassured them because Gaddafi proved that not all authoritarian regimes collapse overnight. That gave them a chance to catch their breath and steady their nerves. The Gulf states and the Western powers may have been on the same side, but their instincts were poles apart. The United States saw much of the early stages of the Arab Spring through the prism of its impact on Israel and oil. It didn't have a plan for the new Middle East, so it went back to the old one. The US sought stability in the region. But the Gulf states, once they were sure they'd still sorted out stability at home, set about shaking things up everywhere else. They were much quicker to recognize that stability for the sake of stability was pointless at this stage. The region was in flux. Instead of trying to contain it, they decided to steer it in the direction they wanted. So began another round in the decades-long proxy war between the most conservative Shia power, Iran, and the most conservative Sunni power, Saudi Arabia. The Saudis saw in all the turmoil an opportunity to dramatically weaken Tehran's influence in the region. That opportunity was to be found in Syria. I was told by UN officials in Damascus that at times last year, as the UN called for peace and reconciliation, Saudi Arabia and Qatar were deliberately sabotaging local ceasefires negotiated by UN monitors. The Salafist fighters were mainly getting their funding from Saudi Arabia. Qatar funded fighters linked to the Muslim Brotherhood. It was clear that the Qataris were not fussy who they dealt with, if it produced the desired result. Uh, I am very much against excluding anyone at this stage or bracketing them as terrorists or bracketing them as Al-Qaeda, said the Qatari Minister of Foreign Affairs in December last year. So let's be clear, Saudi Arabia and Qatar are meddling in Syria for thoroughly selfish reasons. Freedom, democracy and human rights have absolutely nothing to do with it. A UN official in New York told me the Saudi government are more concerned about Iran. That is their big monster in the equation. What happens afterwards when it comes to Syria is almost immaterial. Most of the funding for Al-Qaeda-linked extremists still comes from wealthy individuals in the Gulf. When the original funding from Syrian businessmen sympathetic to the pro-democracy rebels dried up, the only regular and reliable funds came from the Gulf. That meant moderate groups not only ran out of arms and ammunition, they also lost their fighters to the Islamist groups, who still had money and resources and could fight. If the Saudi interest in the conflict is about weakening Iran, then what is Qatar doing? Qatar is more complicated. Nobody really understands the minutiae of Qatari foreign policy, perhaps not even the Qataris. Small nations like to feel important, and they like to have bigger friends. The Qataris are a tiny nation with lots of money. They are looking at the post-Arab Spring world as a giant tombola, and they're trying to buy up as many tickets as they can in the hope they might win something somewhere. They want to have lots of grateful friends in the hope that when it's all over, people will like them. The only thing that is certain in Syria is who is losing. The Syrian people are losing. They are losing their lives, their homes, their wealth. Their children are losing their childhoods. The Syrians are also losing Syria because the longer this goes on, the more society is losing what little sense of identity it had. It's also looking increasingly unlikely that Syria as a country will remain. The Islamist groups seem to be trying to create a small statelet of their own in the north of the country. Importantly for now, they, tr they seem to be trying to avoid the mistakes of alienating and murdering the local population, which was a trademark of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is what eventually led people to turn against them. After the US had spent more than a decade at war with al-Qaeda in the region, the conflict in Syria led to the unedifying spectacle of America and Osama bin Laden's followers being on the same side, although with very different visions for the post-conflict area to have left the way open for al-Qaeda to reconstitute itself on the border of America's most important Middle East ally, Israel, is a massive failure of American foreign policy. 
The Arab Spring was at first an ideological catastrophe for Al-Qaeda. It fundamentally undermined one of the key planks of the global jihad philosophy, which was that the West will not allow peaceful change, so first we must deal with them a mortal blow. The chaos in Syria and the coup in Egypt has given groups like Al-Qaeda another chance. Is there anything that stayed the same in this conflict, you may ask yourself? Well, yes, there is. The political opposition in exile, the Syrian National Council, which wanders around the international capitals, attending conferences and making grand speeches, is still not leading anyone. It barely has control of the delegates in the room with it, let alone the fighters in the field. In fact, at one gathering in Cairo, they literally descended into a brawl. They were irrelevant at the start of the crisis, and they are irrelevant today. So there you have it. That is just about the only continuity in the Syrian conflict. It is for this reason that around a dozen of the most effective groups of rebels in Syria last month said they would no longer recognize the SNC. And the problem with that is this. If we do have a Geneva II, if we do have another attempt at a peace process in Syria, any deal will be worthless because no one in the room is actually representing the people doing the fighting. The only person involved in this crisis who has recently seemed to be on the up is Bashar al-Assad. It wasn't very long ago that world leaders were lining up to say Assad must go. And now they'd all rather like him to stay, at least until next summer when he gives up his chemical weapons. After presiding over mass murder, rape, torture, chemical weapons use and the deaths of more than 100,000 of his people and the displacement of millions more, he's suddenly getting to act like a statesman again. The Obama administration really did not want to bomb Syria and they felt like they were getting boxed into it after John Kerry's uh, unfortunate off-the-cuff remark, which was described as a goof, uh, which it was. And at one stage he genuinely thought he might lose his job, according to the rumour that's running around Washington. But even when they were boxed in, Kerry and Obama couldn't even agree what kind of bombs they would drop. They would either be unbelievably small in terms of airstrikes or, they, or America just doesn't do pinpricks. That fiasco upset the Israelis because they figured if Obama was going to prevaricate on the actual use of chemical weapons, he was likely to do the same over the decisive action on the Iranian nuclear issue. George W. Bush led America into Iraq without a plan. Barack Obama kept America out of Syria without a plan. Not acting is not passive. Not acting is a decision that has consequences. The Obama administration made a mistake allowing the untried and undemocratic Gulf states to run the show at the beginning. The opportunity to stop the descent into bloodlust has been lost. The fact is that only people with no long-term vested interest in the well-being of the subjects of the state could have conjured up Syria and Iraq. There can now only be a policy of containment. The warring sides will have to exhaust themselves into a solution. In the past, conflicts in the region were primarily about land. In the future, they will be over the perceived will of God. No one can say for sure exactly how the region will evolve in the coming years. All that can be said is that religion will increasingly play a bigger part in the political choices of people, whether they are Muslims or Jews or Christians. People will want their societies to reflect their values, but their politicians will be judged by their performance, not their preaching. If they don't provide good jobs and functioning public services, they will be booted out. This is a new Middle East because the people of the region now have a voice. They will not go back to sitting on their couch as passive observers. And so, whether their leaders like it or not, whether they like what they say or not, the world after the Arab Spring means they are simply now going to have to listen to them. Thank you. Right, uh, thank you very much. I was going to ask a question, but seeing as Paul has insulted the Egyptians, the Israelis, the US and the Gulf states uh, and the Syrian National Congress, I think there'll be enough interest from the audience without me uh, hedging. You can insult me if you want. And um, quick questions. If you want to say who you are, that's fine, but there's only one speaker here and he's just stopped speaking, so I want short, crisp answers from you. Yes, ma'am. because I had 40 minutes. Um, uh, is Assad winning the war? Well, he thinks he is because he's not losing it. Uh, and there was a stage when he thought he was going to lose it. 
Um, and now, he is looking at a country that basically probably isn't going to stay as it was. It looks like it's being divided into possibly three bits. One that's uh, controlled by this kind of loose group called the FSA. Uh, one controlled by the uh, jihadist groups in the north. And if you look at the fighting that's going on, they are fighting to hold on to territory. They're not pushing down to Damascus. They want to create a little state of their own. And then an area probably held by Assad. So is he winning? No. Is he losing? No. And that's part of the problem. That's why I think we may end up with a kind of Yugoslavia-type scenario where basically it goes on and on and on until people exhaust themselves into a solution. Um, Russia, China, Turkey. Uh, that should be quick. Um, but the Chinese kind of follow the Russians on um, foreign policy, and they are both furious about what happened in Libya. They really, really felt suckered by the no-fly zone and the uh, looking after the population and that was basically kind of turned into a let's have some regime change. And in many ways the Syrians are dying by their thousands because Libyans were saved probably by their thousands. Um, China has, it's interesting with China because they saw the Arab Spring as an opportunity to make some new friends. And, so, and I spent three years in China and the Chinese do think about personal relationships. A lot of their policy is based on that. And they looked at the Middle East and said, well, the Americans have got all the friends. You know, they've been dealing with these guys for decades. And suddenly, all these old guys disappeared. And the Chinese did see an opportunity to basically try and make some friends. But Chinese foreign policy outside of the, their immediate vicinity is pretty much about shopping. They want to buy stuff so that everybody else back home is happy. That's about as far as it goes. It's about shopping. Um, and they have to keep their economy going because they've got lots and lots of students coming out who need jobs. And that's why they've been spending billions and billions of dollars building roads, building this, building that, during the economic downturn to keep people employed. Because what the Chinese really don't like is young people of around about your age going onto the streets and saying that I'm very unhappy. Because it happened once before and it turned a bit ugly for them. Um, the Turks. Well, the Turks were kind of talking a big game and they had this zero problems with neighbours policy that has not worked out very well for them. And at the beginning of the Arab, League, uh, uh, the Arab Summit, they were kind of hoping that they could be kind of you know, the big guy in the region. And then they realised that America didn't really want to get involved and they realised that their own public didn't really want to get involved as it got more and more messy um, in Syria. And I think the Turks now would kind of wish that, uh, they, that Syria was somewhere else and not on their border. And it, it was interesting, when I was in Syria before the Arab Spring, uh, I met some of the Syrian uh, government, some of the advisors to President Assad, and they were saying, you know, everywhere we look, the Turkish goods are coming in here, everything we buy is Turkish. So Turkey was really having an influence economically in Syria, and that's all gone. They were hoping to get political uh, influence, and that's kind of all gone. So the Turks, they've not had a very good hour spring either, so I've now added Turkey to the, to to the, the list. list. Right, let's collect some questions from this side of the room. Yeah, you, sir. We'll have three or four questions and then come back. Do I get to keep the pen? Yeah. I question on um, the Israeli influence of, on American politics. Do you think that might have been diminished? Is the role of AIPAC less powerful than it was given the Syria vote? And secondly, what do you make of the decision by FIFA to award the World Cup to Qatar? Right, Israel, US and FIFA. Well, Further up there, there's another question at the back. Yes, you saw on the edge there. Good evening, Mr. Danar. Please excuse me if I don't pronounce your name correctly. You said you went to Iraq and you fleetingly mentioned Saddam Hussein. Mm. You didn't mention uh, the achievements that Saddam Hussein carried. You mentioned this purely the st statue. You saw it erected and you saw it demolished. Then you fleetingly mentioned Gaddafi. Uh, you saw him alive and you saw him dead. Uh, and then somebody in the audience felt it was worth a chuckle. That's what, what they feel about uh, dead people. And your question uh, is? Sorry? Your the, question. the question is, you have covered a wide-ranging uh, topics. You talk about the Arab Springs. This is a, this is a phrase which was created by the West to, to co convey something because the West is full of uh, the ideology of creating a phrase to, to suit the, the media. You have not touched 
on the, uh, the reasons, the excuses, the consequences of what has been, uh, been tried and was uh, the, the uh, was, this was an operation started Last by... Chance. Is there a question, please? Yeah, the, the question is, you mentioned Israel and you mentioned America. You live in America, the land of the free where, and the democracy, where they deny democracy to their a question. people. Uh, the, the question is, you mentioned Syria. I hope it's good you, now. They mentioned Syria, but you, uh -huh. you have not offered... You have not offered... Right. If you don't have a question, can you hand the microphone Yes, it does. The question is, mm. how do you suppose the, the resolution of the conflict in North Africa and in Syria will be, and Iraq, for that matter, will be resolved? How will the conflicts be resolved? That's great. Thank you. A third question. Yeah, right at the back, the lady right at the back there with her hand up. Please, a little bit shorter, if you don't mind. Hi. Um, do you see a future, for, a long-term future for the State of Israel that isn't really willing to um, push for a two-state solution? Excellent. So we have uh, declining, US influence, declining Israeli influence in Washington, uh, FIFA and uh, the World Cup, and how do these conflicts uh, find resolution? Uh, let me deal with the question was almost as long as my speech, um, so I'll deal with that one first. Um, uh, I was in uh, Iraq uh, under Saddam, and to be very honest, um, if you weren't involved in politics and you didn't get arrested and you therefore didn't get tortured, life wasn't that bad. But unfortunately, a lot of people did get arrested and did get tortured, and life could at times. Let me finish my point. I did listen to your question. Um, so, what was interesting about Iraq was that, and the reason why people got so angry with the Americans was, under Saddam, if you didn't unfortunately get mixed up in anything to do with politics, your kids could walk home from school at night. Your wife could come home from work, and so could you. And you didn't have to worry about getting blown up or snatched from the street. And that was why, when the Americans came in and security fell apart, that the Iraqis got so upset. And, you know, security... Until you don't have it, you don't really understand how important security is. Uh, and that's why Iraq went so badly wrong for the Americans. Do I think that the conflicts in the region will be resolved? Not quickly. Um, I think Syria will go on for quite a long time, and I'm not even sure that Syria will exist afterwards. Uh, I'm more optimistic about Libya. Libya is pretty homogeneous, it has a small population, they're quite well educated, and they do have oil. So I think there's a better chance for Libya. It's a bit complicated and chaotic at the moment, but I think overall, yeah, it, it, it may work. Uh, in Egypt, I am really quite pessimistic about Egypt, although I'm optimistic about the Egyptian people, because I simply don't believe they'll let their country go back to 30 years of dictatorship. Uh, on APAC, do I think that APAC is losing influence in America? No, but I also think it's wrong to just assume that you know, APAC is this kind of awful lobby group that basically bends people's arms and twists people to do things they don't want to do. There's a lot of support for Israel in America, and APAC in many ways reflects that. You know, it's, not just, you know, it's not just Jewish Americans, lots of Christian Americans also support the Israeli state, and a lot of uh, Christians and a lot of uh, Jews in America think that Israel is an important country that deserves their support. So I think it's a bit too simplistic sometimes to just say, you know, APAC, the bogeyman in the room, making all these people doing things they don't want to do. Actually, most of them do want to do what they do. APAC voices their, their concerns. And people act because they genuinely believe in a lot of what APAC says. So I don't think it's the bogeyman. On Qatar, should they have got the World Cup? Well, I like football, and I don't want to watch it in the middle of summer, in the middle of the Gulf. So I'd have said no on that basis alone. Um, I should say, and I should be honest with you here, that uh, the Qataris don't obviously like my book very much because they've not allowed it to be published, but my criticisms were before the book wasn't allowed to be published, so uh, it's nothing personal with the Qataris. But should they have got feet? Well, look, I'm, I'm going to say this as a football fan. No, I don't want to go and watch football in the middle of the summer, and do I want to see the English Premier League messed around by moving it to the winter? No, I don't. Uh, so that's a football answer, really, but it's heartfelt. Um, <laughs> What was next? Survival, uh, of survival of Israel. Yes, of course, Israel will survive. Uh, it has an, an enormous amount of support, um, and it has a history, and a, you, can, you can understand why Israelis are nervous. I mean, you, know, you would be silly not to. 
they have had a pretty bad recent history and they've had a pretty bad ancient history. So, you know, Israel, yes, it is, you know, it's a, it, again, it's a bit of a bogeyman and it's upset a lot of people, but fundamentally, many people around the world believe in the state of Israel, believe in Israel's right to exist, and it isn't going anywhere. It isn't going anywhere at all. And it would make much more sense if many people around the world kind of accepted the reality on the ground and then tried to deal with it. That doesn't happen. People argue a lot. But no, it's not going anywhere. Did I miss anybody? You didn't. So some questions at the back, and then we'll come down to the front for the final round. Yeah, you, sir, with the suit uh, over there. And the tie, sorry. Hi, Paul. My question is a straightforward one. Uh, I don't feel the media challenges enough the inconsistency of America towards Iran's right to have civilian nuclear industry, which is its right under the 1968 Nuclear Proliferation Pact. Uh, they supported, under Gerard Ford, the previous dictator, Shahreza Pavla, to have a nuclear industry, as did Europe. But under the current regime, which does have some democratic features, we seem to be anti it and trying to block it at every juncture. What is your opinion on that? Okay, thank you. Anyone else? Yeah, just further down. Yes, you, sir, with your two fingers up. <laughs> Not to me. <laughs> thank you. I'll leave it to later. Could you, uh, Paul, could you please elaborate on the United Nations' role in this conflict? Which one? The United Nations, the role the United Nations in Syria, in, Syria. in Syria, regarding the Syria, the oh, Syrian right. U.S. conflict. Excellent, thank you. And thank then, you. yes, you, ma'am, there. Why the British, with a long experience in Middle East politics, uh, did not advise Obama about the Middle East and left it to Saudi Arabia and Qatar? Excellent. And then finally, yes, you ma'am down here. And we'll come back for one final round before we let Paul sell his books. Um, do you think that actually what's happening in, in Syria, that the, the conflict is not going to be resolved anytime soon, was exactly what um, US wanted to do? I, they didn't want a strong um, Assad, but they didn't want, they wanted to support the opposition enough but not enough to make them stronger because that's not even their side. So do you not think this is exactly where they want it? We've got to that. Be? Great. Thanks. So um, the media being unfair on Iran's civil civil, right to have civil nuclear power, the UN's role in Syria, brackets if any, uh, why the Obama administration didn't listen to British advice and did to Saudi and Gattery advice and is the outcome in Syria what the US really want? Uh, so uh, I mean, the premise of your question is, is the West you know, does the West have double standards? Yes, it does. And naturally, there was a, there was a press briefing where uh, the Americans are quite open about that. They, you know, they worried about their interests. Does the foreign media um, reflect those double standards? Well, I would probably say yes, because I am part of the foreign media. Um, I think the problem is that people do often, my experience of being on Twitter, as I'm sure you all are, is that if you don't say what people want you to say, then you're biased. And that is a, you know, it, that's the fact. I mean, people just basically want to hear their opinions reflected back at them. Do I think there is a conspiracy of the media to turn a blind eye to the, um, to the, to the double standard of the Western world? No, I don't. And you've only got to read a lot of newspapers to find out that actually they're reporting and slagging off their own governments and everybody else's government uh, quite a lot. So, I, no, I don't uh, take that point. Um, why didn't the Obama administration listen to the British instead of listening to the Saudis? Well, they, the Saudis didn't ask. The Saudis just did it. I mean, the Saudi and Qatar didn't go around to Washington and say, would you mind if we gave a lot of money to a bunch of nutcases in Syria? They just didn't ask. They just did it. They gave a lot. Of, and it was mainly individual, uh, individuals in the Gulf with a lot of money who funded the really hardline Islamist groups. So uh, America wasn't asked. Um, and... Actually, it was kind of busy getting re-elected in 2012, and I do think that that was a, a big problem. Uh, it really did take its eye off the ball. If you remember, at the end of 2011, uh, well, beginning of 2012, sorry, uh, Hillary Clinton was talking about, you know, talking up the SNC, they're going to be this great group that's going to work, and they didn't, and then at the end of, uh, after a year, they talked up another group, also called the SNC, they were going to work, and then they didn't as well. So I think the problem really with Syria in 2012 was that nobody got involved apart from the Gulf. And then they all came back after their elections and went, so Syria, what do we do? And by then it was just catastrophic. Um, uh, is Syria going to be resolved anytime soon? No. It's not going to be resolved anytime, anytime soon. Um, you're not from Egypt, are you? Yeah. 
Okay, because the Egyptians normally have the best conspiracy theories. Um, uh, is there a conspiracy theory? I mean, this, this kind of idea that basically what's happened is that people want uh, Syria to basically suck in all the resources of the Iranians and all the other bad guys, um, I think has happened more by default. I don't think that you know, anyone sat around in a room. I mean, I think what you have to understand, and I've dealt with a lot of politicians and a lot of you know, people from around the world, you give them too much credit. Most of the mistakes they make is incompetence. It's getting things wrong. You know, they're, they're, you, when you're young, as I used to be, um, you have this great idea that people are in control of what's going on. They are not. It's, they are basically driven by events and reacting to events, and sometimes they get it very badly wrong, and they do things that are against their own interests. So, no, I don't think it, it was a conspiracy, but do I think by accident that's what's happening? Yeah, I do think now you have a situation where... The, the Saudis, in particular, are seeing this as a way to basically blood Iran. And I think along with the sanctions and the amount of money the Iranians must be spending looking after the Syrians, that's probably what's happening. Right, one quick round of questions before you get to sell your books. Uh, you, sir. Uh, two quick questions. No, we only allowed one. Uh, Just put and in the middle and then you won't notice. <laughs> one less put yourself. What do, you, what do you think of the Israeli Prime Minister saying that the new Iranian Prime Minister is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And the second question, <laughs> the second question is, what is your take on Oman and Jordan and their role in this Middle Eastern crisis? Uh, can you hand the mic directly behind you, thanks. Um, I was just wondering whether you have any insight on what's happening in Bahrain and whether the uprisings that are happening there are likely to take on the same sort of volume as what's happened in Egypt and Syria. And over there, the man with the scarf. Um, you've obviously concentrated on uh, Egypt and Syria mainly, but um, could you briefly say something about Yemen and whether you think the national dialogue might be a future paradigm for negotiations? Excellent question. Right. All in five minutes. <laughs> uh, where do we start? Uh, I can't remember writing. What was the first question? Restate it. But the, the first bit, not the second bit. Oh, the wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah, now I remember. Um, uh, well, he would do, wouldn't he? I mean, the thing is that, that, that uh, Rouhani is a bit more of a complicated character to deal with than Ahmadinejad, who just came across and looked, so I'm nuts, everyone. And then it was like, well, that's easy to deal with, you know. But when someone comes along and says, I want to be your friend, you know, I just, I just, I just want to make, forget about the rest. I want to, you know, let's, let's just get on with each other. Um, that is harder to deal with. So, look, Netanyahu genuinely believes what he's saying. He's not making it up. He genuinely believes that Iran is a threat and he thinks the world is being suckered. Now, is he right? I don't know. Nobody really knows apart from the Iranians. Um, so, no, I'm not surprised by that. Uh, what's the next bit of it? What's the second, second part? Oh, we're not allowed to second part. The future oh, of Bahrain. Future of Bahrain. Um, well, that was, Bahrain was where the Saudis basically got to stop the Arab Spring in its tracks. And they got away with it because the Americans were not going to stop them stopping it in its tracks. Um, and Bahrain is like the perfect example of where kind of Western values get trumped by Western interests. And while they have lots of oil in that part of the world, the West will carry on like that. I think what's quite interesting is if uh, all you people agree for people to drill under your homes and get gas and oil from fracking, then that may change things. It certainly will change things in America because they are now probably going to become self-sufficient in oil. So what's going to happen in the Gulf? I think if the new energy sources put the uh, price of a barrel of oil below $100 a barrel, that will have big problems, particularly for the Saudis, because their people have a standard of living that they now expect to keep. Um, and while they won't go bankrupt if it goes down to 70 or 80, they will find their lifestyle is not what it was, and that will cause agitation. And I think the interesting thing about Saudi Arabia is it has more people on Twitter per person than any other country in the world. And that's kind of amazing, really, and it shows you that Saudis have a lot to talk about. They are upset about things. It may, they may be tweeting each other about the football, but a lot of it is probably about the fact that they're not happy with a lot of their lives. And if they suddenly find that they're not being bought off in the way that they were, then I think things will change. Uh, Yemen. Oh, no, but no. Bahraini uprising, does it have Bahraini, a future? Does it have a future? Uh, no. I don't think it has. I mean, I think, you know, who's going to, who's going to encourage them? You know, I think one of the big problems in the Gulf is that people have, have tried to kind of project the Shia minority as a kind of, you know, uh, a secret kind of a way in for Iran. 
it, it isn't. I mean, that's not what people. That's not what this, the Shia are upset because they, they don't get any. They don't get. They can't. They can't vote. They don't get what they want. They are not allowed to be equal citizens. That's what's going on in Bahrain. Unfortunately, they live in a part of the world that has lots of oil. If they live somewhere else, I'm sure we'd all be running over to Bahrain and waving flags with them and saying, you know, this is a terrible, terrible. But they don't. They live in the wrong part of the world. I'm afraid to get their democracy and their freedom. Um, Yemen. Well, Yemen was supposed to be the way that it was all going to be sorted out in Syria as well. Um, and it was supposed to work, but unfortunately the guy that they got rid of is still there. Uh, and, uh, you know, Yemen is... It looks good on paper. Um, I really don't think Yemen is going to come out of it in much better state than it was when it went in. Um, and it has big problems with Al-Qaeda. It has huge problems with its economy. Um, uh, I'm not hugely optimistic about Yemen, but again, the thing about Yemen is it's a bit like Tunisia. No one really wants to fight over Yemen, I mean, apart from people that are in Yemen. Um, and sometimes sort of not wanting pe people not wanting to fight over you is quite a good thing. Um, so I'm kind of, I think the kind of, uh, Yemen's a bit unusual. I, I don't know where Yemen's going to go. I don't think anyone knows where Yemen's going to go. I can't see it getting much better. It may not get much worse. That's probably not what you're hoping for, but uh, it, just, it just looks very, very complicated in Yemen. It's not necessarily a bad note to end. Two things, we need to thank our speaker who's done a brilliant tour of the region, but also we need to stay seated so our speaker can get to his books and then you can run out and buy them. And you'll run thank past you. me and keep your eyes down.